I'm very happy to introduce a colleague of mine, Tomas Jimenez. Tomas is an assistant professor of sociology at Stanford University. He is also an Irvine Fellow at the New America Foundation. His research and writing focus on immigration, assimilation, social mobility, and ethnic and racial identity. His book manuscript, which I've actually read, The Replenished, Mexican Americans, Mexican Immigration, and the Dynamics of Ethnic Identity will be published by the University of California Press sometime either in 2009 or 2010. Jimenez is also taught at the University of California at San Diego. He holds a Bachelor's of Science in Sociology from Santa Clara University and AM and PhD degrees in Sociology from Harvard University. Please welcome Tomas Jimenez. Thank you, Gregory, and thank all of you so much for being here tonight. Uh, tonight, we're going to have a discussion about one of the most important issues of our time, and that's immigration, and the flip side of that is integration. And in the debate on immigration, there are two related sets of issues that we talk about. The first has to do with immigration. Who should be allowed in? Who should be allowed to stay? Who should go? And we're well familiar with the policy questions that grow out of that debate, questions about border enforcement, questions about ICE raids, pathways to citizenship, guest worker programs, et cetera, et cetera. The second part of the debate has to do with immigrant integration. And that part of the debate uh, gets talked about a lot too. And those questions are probably well familiar, us, well familiar to us as well, questions about whether or not immigrants are learning English. Are they becoming civically engaged Americans? Are they contributing economically? But the policy questions that grow out of these two parts of the larger immigration debate are unevenly discussed. We rarely ever talk about an integration policy for immigrants. We talk a lot about an immigration policy, but we don't talk much about whether or not we should have an immigrant policy. And so tonight, we take up that question, should the United States have an immigrant integration policy? And to help us answer that question, we've assembled a distinguished panel, and I'd like to introduce them to you right now. Uh, to my far left is Alfonso Aguilar, and he is the chief of the Office of Citizenship and the US Citizenship uh, and Immigration Services. Mr. Aguilar is the first chief of that office, he was appointed to the post in 2003 by President Bush. As, off, as office chief, Mr. Aguilar is charged with leading efforts to promote an understanding of the civic principles on which this nation was founded and increase public awareness of the benefits and responsibilities associated with US citizenship. Since 2003, the Office of Citizenship has implemented a variety of educational materials and training initiatives for immigrants and the organizations that serve them. Mr. Aguilar led the agency's efforts to redesign the U.S. naturalization test. And as chair of the Task Force on New Americans Technical Committee, Mr. Aguilar is leading efforts to enhance and coordinate government-wide immigrant integration initiatives. Our second panel, panelist to my immediate right is Jose Luis Gutierrez, and he is the director of the, of the Illinois Office of New Americans, which is a first-of-its-kind government office that helps immigrants enter the mainstream more quickly. Whether that means learning English, buying a home, encouraging their children to succeed in schools, or supporting their communities in other ways. He actively participated in the campaign for the Mexican vote abroad, and was elected member of the Advisory Council of the Institute of Mexicans Abroad. He was the board president for the Latino Progress Institute. He served as president of the Federation of Michoacanos in Illinois, and he is the founding member of the National Alliance of Latin American and Caribbean Communities. To my left is Lorene Laglagaron, who is a policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute. Her work focuses on initiatives through the Institute's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. And prior to joining MPI, Ms. Laglagaron practiced immigration and family law in San Francisco as an Equal Justice Works Fellow at Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach. Ms. Laglagaron previously worked uh, at, the, at the Urban Institute where she co-authored Social Rights and Citizenship, which is a report that was part of the uh, Comparative Citizenship Project within the Working Group on Social Rights and Citizenship for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And finally, to my far left, to your far right, 
is Dowell Myers, who is a professor of urban planning and demography at the University of Southern California. He is well known as a specialist in demographic trends and their relation to all areas of policy and planning. He has been a long-standing advisor to the US Census Bureau and is the author, author of the most widely referenced text on census analysis. His newest book, and you should all go out and buy it, is called Immigrants and Boomers Forming a New Social Contract for the Future of America. And in it, Dr. Myers argues that immigrant integration is essential for California's and indeed the nation's prosperity. He's the recipient of the Haynes Award for Research Impact. He, is also, he also leads the USC's California Demographic Futures Research Project, which focuses on, among other things, the upward mobility of immigrants in the US and Southern California. And I'd like you to join me in welcoming our panel. <clears throat> And so our discussion is gonna go like this. Uh, I have a set of questions here that I'm going to direct initially at one of our panelists and then, uh, and then we'll open it up to the other panelists to, to chime in. I have asked them uh, uh, backstage and I will ask them here publicly to keep their answers, to be efficient with their answers, uh, although I realize that's not always possible with such an important issue like this. Uh, and we'll do that for about 35 or 40 minutes and then we'll open things up to uh, everyone. You'll have an opportunity to ask questions of our panelists and we'll do that for about 15 to 20 minutes and then we'll adjourn to, uh, to drinks and hors d'oeuvres. So I'd like to start with, uh, with you, Dell Myers. Um, we sometimes hear people say that immigrants aren't assimilating. And then we hear on the other hand that immigrants are integrating. Help us sort this out. What is the difference between assimilation and integration? That's actually the hardest question first. <laughs> uh, yeah, assimilation means many different things. There is the old notion that it was Anglo-conformity, that immigrants would fit into middle-class white society. But that's been superseded now by a broader concept, and it leads to integration. But first let me describe assimilation. It's, it's economic advancement, it's civic participation, it's inclusion in society is the general notion now of assimilation. But assimilation, we say, is a two-way street. It's not just immigrants that adjust. It's also the receiving society that adjusts. And to, I think to express that better, the new term of integration has come to the fore. And the idea is that everybody is moving together. And uh, immigrants rapidly change, but then again, they contribute things. And the rest of society also is changing, and they're fitting together, and it's that integration that I think we're talking about for, uh, that, that needs to be addressed as part of an immigration policy. How about others? Is that the, the vision of? Well, let, let me defer slightly <clears throat> with, with Dowell's uh, perspective. I, I would say that I don't have a problem with the word integration or assimilation. At the end, it depends what, what we mean with those terms. I think in today's America, in a liberal democracy, uh, our identity as Americans is based on political principles that we all share. There are two spheres in, uh, in a liberal democracy. Cultural, religion, traditions, that depends to the, uh, on the individual, but then the political, and that's where we all come together. We're joined by a common language, common sense of history, mm -hmm. and a common, uh, a common political principles. So whether you call it uh, political assimilation, patriotic assimilation, civic integration, patriotic integration, some in Europe call it constitutional patriotism. It really doesn't matter as long as we know what it means and it's that integration into the civic culture. Uh, so the word assimilation actually I like because assimilation means making your own. And I think it's important for immigrants when they come here to take those principles and truly make them their own. We can even talk about a melting pot. It's not a cultural melting pot, but a political melting pot where I can be Hispanic and, and my faith can be uh, Catholic, but politically, I'm American as anybody else. Well, for me, it goes a little beyond that. I mean, because for me, it's like having the access to all the opportunities the American society offers to anybody. And I'll define myself a binational citizen because I love America, but at the same time, I love Mexico. And being binational means I'm a good American, but at the same time I'm a good Mexican citizen. And assimilation and integration, the name, I think it's important, but not that important. 
what is important is the way I perceive that this society is giving the opportunity to have better access to education for my kids, healthcare, good job, good education. That's integration. And that's what this society is looking for for everybody, not only for you know one segment of the population. That's for me integration or assimilation. I think the name is not that important. Lorraine Lanigaro. Uh, I think it's actually fairly difficult to rest on one definition of what is American. So that's what makes it so difficult to come to terms with, well, how do we know someone's fully integrated? So I actually have a very practical test of immigrant integration. So well, are they performing as well as native born <coughs> here in the United States? Are they being pushed out of high school, drop out, dropping out of high school at the same rate? So I look at it very practically. I look at end outcomes. Are they succeeding the way that native-born people are succeeding here in the United States? So I have a very practical understanding of integration. But I also really like to emphasize, Dawel mentioned this, the two-way street aspect of immigrant integration. It is definitely about communities adjusting. So these are policies that they take at the state and local level to make sure that the community yeah. is receptive to immigrants. So it's very basic. When you walk into your Department of Motor Vehicles, take a look around. If you are limited English proficient, will you understand how to get through and get a uh, motor vehicles license? And of course, Noel said backstage, nobody understands that. So, um, But really, you, you want to think about the ways that, is this a welcoming place? And it can be really difficult to enroll your child in school, do all these different things, unless you have a guide. Um, and usually that guide is another immigrant, but it's often better to have the federal government, the state government, the local government to explicitly welcome immigrants. Others want to add? Well, I would say that going back to identity, uh, in a <laughs> democracy, I think it is uh, imperative that we define American identity. Uh, I think we can in America because we can go back to the foundational documents of our country, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution. And that's where our American identity is defined as political, not cultural. Uh, and I think it's important to preserve the political and social cohesion of the country for everyone to be able to identify themselves regardless of their ethnic or cultural or religious background. Uh, now, I would say that access to health care, access to other benefits is important, but it, at the end is not the final measure of that integration or assimilation. I believe the final measure is when that person feels American and is perceived as American. To me, it's more of an attitudinal uh, issue. Uh, and I think that, yes, we should look at access to, to the job market, access to health care, but those are not final measures on whether we're truly building a community. Because a person may not have a job, a person may not have health care, but still feel very proud of the political community that he or she belongs to. At the end, that's what the final measure that we have to look at. I'm not saying that the other things are not important, but I'm saying the final measure of full belonging to the political community. Okay, so we have a few different ways of understanding assimilation, integration, although I gather that that uh, not too many of us have problems with interchanging those terms. But, but let's talk more about the policy side of this. And I want to start with you, Lorraine Laglagaron. Uh, we talk a lot, uh, well, at least conversations on Capitol Hill uh, about comprehensive immigration reform usually revolve around uh, some aspect of border enforcement or uh, interior enforcement, perhaps uh, a guest worker program, and a pathway to citizenship for the now 11.5 uh, estimated uh, million uh, estimated unauthorized immigrants. What about immigrant integration? And and think and we can think about immigrant integration using any of the definitions that uh, that were provided here. How does that register in discussions about comprehensive immigration reform on Capitol Hill or in Washington, if at all? It, it it's given scant <clears throat> attention, to be honest. And I would. I would look at it in two different ways. So explicit mentions of integration policy versus when integration policy is implicated in immigration policy. So what do I mean? 
So explicitly, if you go back in time to comprehensive immigration reform in 2006, 2007, you'll find maybe 20 pages of legislation in a 600-page bill on comprehensive immigration reform that might talk about creating state-level new American integration policy councils. So what are those? So these are councils, uh, 11 to 15 members, usually business leaders, uh, faith-based organizations, philanthropic organizations that would dole out federal money um, to programs, uh, to states, uh, and they would then dole out the money uh, for immigrant integration programs, so parental involvement for immigrant parents, access to health care, and we're talking about state-level grants anywhere between 200000 to $2 million. So that's when it's explicitly mentioned, um, and that was it was not really anything substantial, when, and nobody really thought deeply about it. And uh, fast forward to July 2008, Senator Clinton and Congressman Honda introduced the Strengthening Communities Through Education and Integration Act of 2008. And as the name implies, it does try to strengthen integration through education. So they would do innovative things like tax credits to teachers, who teach English uh, to, as a second language or to, who teach English language learners. So small changes here and there, but again, nothing very comprehensive. So that's explicit mentions of integration policy. Let's talk about implicit. Legalization. So all of the proposals for legalization front load requirements for English language proficiency. What do I mean? The way that the system works right now, you don't really have to prove English language proficiency until you decide to take the citizenship <laughs> test and then you get, the, uh, you get the questions and then you have to answer usually in the English language. You don't really have to do that until you have a, until, unless you're a lawful permanent resident and have been here for five years. All of the proposals for unauthorized immigrations, unauthorized immigrants becoming, uh, becoming legalized require front-loading of that English language requirement. So, people would have to prove that they're proficient in the English language before they get legalized, or they should prove that they're on their way to becoming English language proficient. Are we prepared to teach the unauthorized immigrants English language right now? The answer is no. Um, we've done some estimates, and in LA County alone, it would take about 289 million hours to teach, um, right, so it's, quite a lot. Um, so we're not quite prepared. So these are the implicit discussions about integration policy that aren't really at the surface when you're talking about legalization and enforcement, but they're certainly there. So that was long. Sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> Alfonso Aguilar, I might toss this over to you since, since you are also centrally located in Washington, D.C. How, how do you see it? How does um, immigrant integration factor yeah, actually, into I, I, debates? Actually, I participate in the discussion on, on those sections on the, on the McCain-Kennedy bill in 06 and the consensus bill in 07 uh, that unfortunately did not pass the Senate. Uh, I would say, however, perhaps uh, we do have a philosophical difference. I'm actually was very happy that, that the bill did not have more than 20 pages on immigrant assimilation. And, and why? Because I believe that while immigration is a federal responsibility, integration does not happen at the federal sphere. It happens in a community, it happens in a city, and I don't think the, the federal government should be dictating uh, policy on, on the states or the communities. Uh, I, I, I believe we should step up efforts at the federal level uh, on immigrant assimilation, but I wouldn't call for a new entitlement program on assimilation because, frankly, we would get it wrong. We would get it wrong. Uh, the, the recent uh, bill introduced by Congressman Honda and uh, Senator Clinton actually was very similar to the language uh, that was included in the, in the consensus bill of 07, creating this network of state councils for immigrant integration. I think that that would, would have facilitated the distribution of educational material throughout states, sharing of best practices uh, among states. But the truth is that there is a dilemma, obviously. Uh, where do we get the resources? With the, with the record number of immigrants we're receiving, with incredible demand for English classes, where do we, re we get the resources to teach all these people? 
Well, answer, actually, frankly, my answer is very pragmatic. I don't think we're ever going to have enough resources. So we have to be creative. And I think we can't have a one-size-fit-all solution. The truth of the matter is only one million people are going to adult uh, uh, education programs to EL civics classes. That's a very small number. The majority of immigrants are not going because they're waiting lists or frankly because they have two or three jobs and they don't have time to go to English or civics class. Or they may not feel comfortable going to school-based setting. So I believe we have to go to the volunteer sector like we did 100 years ago and empower, work with churches, work with community organizations, uh, work with the volunteer sector. I think we can, do, we can train them. This year alone, the Office of Citizenship, Citizenship has trained over 2,000 educators and volunteers that work with immigrants, teaching them English and citizenship throughout the country. I think the question is not about money. The question is about thinking creatively uh, and empowering the communities. But the role of the federal government should be very limited, and it should, should be supportive of what the community is doing. I actually agree um, with Chief Aguilar quite a bit. Um, in fact, especially when it comes to uh, putting the power at the, ha at the hands of state and local government because they are the people who know their communities best. Um, and it has been my experience, and I hope Jose will talk about his initiative in Illinois. Um, but I do worry a little bit about um, engaging in a volunteer force to train immigrants for English language. Um, and I worry because, um, but I agree with Chief Aguilar that it definitely needs to be anytime, anywhere learning, um, and that immigrants are reluctant to sit in a class for six years to learn English and then get vocational training. I mean, that's not gonna happen. But I do worry about immigrants getting quality certified English language training at the hands of volunteers. It needs to be catered. It can't just be done in a community basement. It has to be certified teachers who know that they are progressing from one level to the next and that they are achieving. So I think that's um, what I'll say about that. Dow Myers, you've written a book uh, about the relationship between the graying baby boomer population and, and the relatively young immigrant population. Uh, what do you think about this issue? Is there a possibility here for a retiring graying baby boomer population serving as a, as a volunteer corps to help drive immigrant integration programs? Well, that's, that's a live question. But I gotta <laughs> say first, I, I have to take a 180 degree different slant on what was just been said by the previous uh, panelists. Let's look at it just the opposite direction. I think that immigration policy in America is all about integration. It's about the lack of integration. I think this, the sense that immigrants are not assimilating is what undermines all of our immigration policy. It's the lack of integration or perceived lack that I think is, is uh, so corrosive for immigration policy. So having said that, the real issue is how do you help people become more integrated more rapidly? Because everybody wants to. They all, they, they all say they'd like to learn English. I think the surveys I've seen literally, it's like 90% of, of uh, parents say that learning excellent English is the number one priority for their kids. They all say that. And so um, how do we help them do that? And how do we help people progress in the labor market so that no one ever thinks that they're not integrating? Now, I have an explanation I get to in my book, which is why is that when immigrants are new in a new destination, not, not LA, but you know, North Carolina, Georgia, the, the places that are driving the immigration debate, it's not us, it's out there. And those places where immigrants are new, well, they're new. They haven't had time to assimilate. They haven't had time to, to show that they're integrating. And then people see more and more newcomers and they assume these people are no good. They're not gonna ever fit in. That's what they think because they haven't had time to see it. And I'm serious. So in my book, I address that and show how rapidly immigrants change over time. And I have just a couple of numbers I use, one of which is, do you know what percentage of Mexican immigrants in California are homeowners when they're recently arrived? It's like, you know, 5%. And do you know what percent of Mexican home, uh, immigrants are homeowners after they've been here for 20 years? 51%. And after 30 years, 60%. Who would think that? No one in North Carolina can believe that. But, but all the data show that. In fact, in California, of uh, the top five surnames of people buying homes, all five are Spanish, uh, top five. So we all know that they're buying homes. They're not buying the Beverly Hills mansions, but they're buying all the rest of the homes, which prop up their prices. 
So I, I think that the, um, the older folks um, are going to have a lot to count on with these immigrants who are integrating. Maybe not the day they arrive, but after they've been here for 10 years and 20 years, because in 10 years and 20 years, I like to always remind people it's not a happy thought, but in 10 years and 20 years, everybody in this room is going to be 10 and 20 years older. <laughs> and at which point, we all going to ask the question, what's that? Well, and, and you hope so, right? Uh, and at that point, most of us are going to be asking a question, who's going to buy our house? And the answer is it's going to be um, an, either an immigrant or a child of an immigrant. And because we helped them integrate early on, they got to a better station in life where they could offer us the better price that we think we really deserve for our... our so I think integration, by its absence, is important in immigration policy because people will stop in immigration because they don't think people are integrating. And in fact, they are, but we can make it go faster. That's the key. How do you accelerate it? Uh, let me throw things over to Jose Luis Gutierrez here because more than anyone up here, he has had experience working with uh, immigrant integration policy and has, in fact, um, uh, worked in a program that, right. that would take Dell Myers' uh, call very seriously to speed up immigrant integration. It, it, states like Illinois, New Jersey, uh, Massachusetts, and the state of Washington have all launched major immigrant integration initiatives. Yours is probably the most developed. In fact, it was the very first. From your perspective, having worked uh, in the office that you hold, what kinds of programs work? What kinds of programs make for uh, not only rapid immigrant integration, but also a positive sort of immigrant integration? Well, the good news is that each day, more states are realizing the importance of creating executive orders to work in immigrant integration policies. And um, last week, Maryland, you signed an executive order mm -hmm. uh, to create a, a New Americans Advisory Council. So it's good. We are, I think we are moving in the right, right direction. And uh, in my own experience, I mean, we have been working on this project since 2005, and it has been a kind of very exciting experience because uh, I'm going to agree with uh, my dear friend uh, Aguilar because we, we have been focusing on services because we believe that people need to have access to healthcare. That's why Governor Bergoy signed uh, all kids, you know, it's a standard health coverage for all kids. It means all kids. So we have been very successful with that, but we create, as a result of the recommendations from the Policy Council, the Illinois Welcoming Centers. It has been very successful. It's one step. We provide services to immigrants. I mean, we have workshops. We have a, a very different, different schedule for hours to serve the public. I mean, we are accommodating immigrants' needs. and. Uh, then because the General Assembly didn't approve the budget because the plan was to have like around five across the state. So we didn't get the money. In any, and each welcoming center costs like around a million dollars per year. So now we are doing is welcoming days. We take all the state service to different cities and we partner with community organizations. And I think the key here is to partner with community organizations. So. They, they can take the ownership of the process because maybe tomorrow we are not going to be around in the office and we want to institutionalize these kind of services. And the most difficult thing for me as an immigrant, as, as somebody that English is a uh, second language, is to deal with state police and corrections because it's an area where we need to really uh, work and improving things. <laughs> and I have to hire a consultant to deal with them. So in other areas that I have been very successful is like bilingual pay policies for the state employees. But let me give you some tips. What we decide is, okay, we cannot convince all state agencies to, to start doing all these things. So we start piloting with the uh, Department of Human Services. So we develop the policy, we develop a new test. So Right now, we are asking 16 state agencies to develop their new American plan based on something that one agency 
has been doing for one year already. So they don't have the chance to say, we don't know how to do it, or we don't want to do it. This is what DHS is doing. You just need to accommodate, you need to replicate what we're doing. And it's the way you can facilitate, because bureaucrats, they don't like to be told what to do. And because I have been doing this for so many years, so you're not gonna, you're an immigrant, you're not gonna tell me how to do things. So it has been a, like a challenging for me, but uh, at the same time, I mean, it, it has been very, you know, I'm very grateful with the governor to, to, to give me this opportunity because I can see the difference. It's, a, it's an education process for the directors, for people that have been around for a long time. Uh, Jose, let me stick with, let me stay with you for a moment. Uh, Alfonso Aguilar said a moment ago that the role of the federal government, and, and tell me, Alfonso, if I'm misinterpreting what you said, is, is should be largely that of a, a supportive role to local initiatives uh, at most, uh, that the federal government should be shouldn't be dictating. You are dealing with immigrant integration uh, at the state level, dealing with smaller programs at the local level. If there is a role for the federal government, do you see it as a largely supportive role, or is there a larger role for the federal government to play? I really believe that the federal government needs to play a, a you know, more important role. And in this an area that, that, where they can play a bigger role is civic <coughs> education. There is no way the states are going to do that, do that. That's why I say that's one of the biggest, biggest challenges. How can we demand for an immigrant to be proud of being American when they don't even know what the flag means to them? How can we demand that? I mean, and things like that. I mean, I think it's a big need that the federal government needs to, to start thinking about a massive civic education. I know you have been working very hard, and I know you have a video that I really love, but I think we need to do that and more. And, and that's not the state's role. I mean, to me, I mean, we should be working and making the state service available to all residents. So that's, I think, that's something that, I don't know, I would like to hear from you. I mean, okay, I'll let me now I, I agree with my, my friend, Jose Luis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think he's totally right. I, I mean, when I say that the role of the federal government is supportive, it doesn't mean that the federal government doesn't play an important role. But I think the most important role, besides coordinating with states, uh, as federal government, using the authority of, of the federal government to help different states communicate with each other. I'm sure new gateway states like Georgia, North Carolina, have a lot to learn from Illinois. We can facilitate that. But another uh, role that the federal government can have is, is using the bully pulpit of the federal government to talk about the importance of assimilation, encouraging immigrants in a friendly way to learn English, not this ugly English-only approach, learn English. No. Uh, in a welcoming way, encourage immigrants to learn English, and also encourage the society, to Dow's point, to be welcoming. And, that, and now I go back to the point of civic education. Civic Sorry. education is not only for immigrants. <clears throat> you know, when we developed the naturalization exam, it pained me to see reporters going out to the street to ask Americans important concepts of American democracy, and Americans could not answer them. <laughs> now, I wasn't so concerned when they didn't know who George Washington was, well, you know. But when they were asked concepts like, what is the rule of law? And they could not answer that. I have a concern with that. If a democracy is based on ideals, you have to master those ideals. So integration is a two-way street in that right. respect as well. It has to be a societal effort. It's building a community. And as our society becomes more and more diverse, and Dow can give you the numbers, by 2025, 14% of the population is gonna be, be foreign born. By 2050, I think it's uh, over... In the US? In the US, yeah. uh, um, I forgot the number now. 18? It may be 18 to 19, I think it's 19%, exactly. Those are very high numbers. This immigration wave, is eventually gonna become the greatest wave in our history. So we need a societal approach that includes absolutely everyone. Uh, going back to, to, to volunteering, I think that you know, ideally, yes, you would wanna have uh, certified teachers absolutely 
but there, there are not enough certified teachers. And immigration is happening now, today. So we have to be creative. Something that I'm very excited about is mentoring programs. Canada, Australia have host programs where they receive immigrants and they match an immigrant with a family. In Arkansas, I found a small organization of, of women, Hispanic women, that match professionals from uh, uh, the Ozarks in, in Arkansas with immigrants that are just arriving. That really bridges the gap between the immigrant community and the receiving community. It helps the immigrant integrate, and again, back to Dole's point, it helps the community that receives the immigrant realize that these are real people that can contribute to the society that want to integrate and learn English. Uh, the UK is also doing that. The Time Foundation, which is very well known, Time Bank Foundation, is also sponsoring mentoring programs. So I think that's a great idea. I think we just have to think creatively. Lorraine Lailagato and Dow Myers wanted to chime in quickly. Quickly, um, I think uh, I would like the federal government to enforce federal law. And here I'm thinking about Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and President Clinton's Executive Order 13166, which dictates that limited English proficient people have access to social services, meaningful access to social services. Um, when Jose is talking about having to serve as a tutor to the state government for how exactly to do that, to me, that's not the role for community organizations to do that. that really, the guidance has to come from the top for how exactly do you serve limited English proficient populations. For many localities, they can't even identify who the LEP populations are in their community or what languages they speak. So. Um, Yes, I'll end it there. Del. You know, all this debate about immigrants is really great for Americans. Because, you know, I was born here. And like all my colleagues who were born here, we just take it for granted. We totally take it for granted. We don't need to learn any of this civic stuff. And yet what immigrants do is they hold up a mirror to society, a mirror to the rest of us, and say, so what is it to be an American? What does it really mean to be American? And here we're debating how they should Americanize. That's talking about me. It's talking about my kids, and you know, that's a good thing, don't you think? I wasn't born here, though, <laughs> um, and uh, I uh, have gone through a lot of immigrant statuses, and I am a new U.S. citizen, and it was my first election, and I'm absolutely the most patriotic person in my office, um, certainly if you visit my office. Um, so it's, it's, I completely believe in the United States, and I want others to as well. But to believe in it, you have to understand it in the language of, of the immigrant themselves. I want to ask one last question before we transition into our um, uh, opening up the debate to all of you. Is, is that about right on time? Yeah, okay. So I'm going to ask a question that, that undermines the premise for this entire panel. Uh, and as a sort of counterfactual to the, the, the working assumption, I think that uh, is that we perhaps should do more to, um, in terms of policy, to integrate immigrants. Someone listening to this conversation might say that we should do what we've always done, and that's nothing. Uh, maybe this is the sort of libertarian strain in me saying that the government should do absolutely nothing. Um, but someone might say we should do nothing, and in fact, any attempt at an immigrant integration policy smacks too much of the sort of ethnic chauvinism that defined Americanization programs during uh, the 1910s and 1920s. Dow Myers, let me, let me throw this at you first. Uh, how would you respond to someone who might say that the best policy is no policy and we should just let things unfold as they may? That's too dangerous. <laughs> we want things to unfold for the best America possible. I, I think it's, um, it's good to have uh, integration policy carried out at the local level. But it's expensive. And we know what happens in California. When things are expensive, we cut back. We cut back on services for all the kids, not just the immigrant kids, all the kids. And, you know, I think about the city of Santa Ana, which has uh, incorporated so many Mexican immigrants. Who are they incorporating them for? Is it for Santa Ana? What happens to a, an assimilated uh, Mexican-American a uh, homeowner in Santa Ana. Do they stay in Santa Ana or do they move to Anaheim? Or do they move to Las Vegas? And the interesting thing is, I think Santa Ana is doing the nation's business. Immigration is a federal issue. They come to Santa Ana, Santa Ana takes them in, educates them, 
provides health care, does English services, all at local taxpayer expense. And then when they produce these middle class citizens, they move on to some other city. It's not fair to Santa Ana. The federal government, the federal government should help uh, immigrant gateway communities to do a better job. They should help underwrite the expense and they should provide for a higher level of service because it's the nation's business that Santa Ana is doing. Others want to weigh in. I just want to say, very simple, if United States or America wants to continue being a competitive nation, we need to learn how to capitalize on the energy and the talents of immigrants. Otherwise, I don't see how we're going to be able to continue being, you know, the land opportunity. Uh, I would just say that... Uh to your question, I believe that there should be a policy, but it should be a very limited policy, uh, one that is welcoming, one that encourages uh, assimilation. But I think at the end, uh, America ha is based on individual responsibility. It, immigrants are extremely entrepreneurial. One out of every six small business today is owned by a Hispanic. Uh, they're hardworking. They arrive here and they immediately start working, start opening a job. They're very resourceful. To think that we can, it's in a, in a way even condescending to think that we're gonna hold their hand and tell them you know, basically everything. Resources are very limited. And I think what we need to do is to, to continue to have pro-growth policies that create jobs so that immigrants can come here, find a job, work hard, and we need them. And besides that, obviously, we need comprehensive reform. And we need not only to regularize those undocu undocumented immigrants who are here, because we cannot talk about integration if we have 12 to 20 million people living in the margins of society. But not only that, we also need a mechanism to bring foreign workers to the United States, because the reality is that we need workers. Our economy keeps growing. We're going through uh, a financial crisis. But that's the free market. You go through these periods. It's going to reestablish itself, I am sure. And we're going to need that labor. So we need to create a mechanism so immigrants can come here legally. But I think the worst that we can do is treat immigrants in a condescending way. I think we have to give them opportunity and send the message that they can aspire to the American dream, not to an entitlement, but they can actively participate of the American dream. I think that's the best way we can integrate immigrants. So I believe that we, the federal government has a role, but it should be limited. Great. Uh, good evening, folks. We will now begin our Q&A portion of our discussion yeah. tonight. Uh, this is so, being recorded for podcasts, so all questions so must like, be asked into the microphone. Just raise your hand and wait for a Socolow staff to get to you. There's two a, of us going around on each side. We have a question up to front. My, my name is David Trilling, and um, I wanted to ask, one part of this, of the uh, immigration slash integration discussion that you guys haven't talked a lot about, which is what has made it so sensitive when, when the bill was in Washington. Uh, uh, the, the reaction, certain parts of the country, particularly with uh, no offense with one, one party and the strongest constituency um, feeling that the immigrants are maybe they're taking their jobs, they're moving into their neighborhoods and, and they don't feel it's comfortable because they're not integrating or whatever. And, and the case that you make at the end, which is a very important one, which is it's in their interest or it's in our whole country's interest for them to come, has not been, I mean, A, if it affects people personally, that's a hard case to make. But if it doesn't affect them personally, why isn't there a greater education to explain to people, to make a case, we actually need these immigrants and it makes our country actually much more vigorous. Thank you. Um, I think immigration is actually a very difficult issue that is actually not a red-blue issue. Um, it's a demographic issue. So Dowell Myers alluded to this, but you know, when we think of immigration and immigration states, we think of the top six, you know, New York, Il Illinois, New Jersey, Florida, we, California. We think about these big places, but the demographic story of the last 15 to 20 years is location of immigrants to the southeast and the southwest. So places like Nevada, places like South Carolina, these are communities that have never necessarily seen a brown person or 
understand how to react and respond to immigrant communities. So it's not, and people often ask me, well, there must be a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. No, they just don't know how to respond. They don't know what policies to take. And that's where the federal government could be useful in the sharing of best practices. So I think that it's not a red-blue issue, but it's a matter of disseminating information uh, to states and localities, particularly those who are new to the topic of immigration. I, I, let me agree with that 100%. And people will be surprised. I mean, when you watch television, you watch certain shows, you think that the debate is very polarized. But in Washington, frankly, there's a lot of consensus. Yeah among Democrats and enough Republicans, I believe, yeah. on, on the basics of immigration reform. Yeah. We just need the political planets to align to make it happen. The problem is, it's not as simple, I always say, you know, it's not Tom Tancredo versus Luis Gutierrez. These are two extremes, <laughs> and I reject both. Uh, but I think there is a consensus right in the center that agrees that we need comprehensive immigration reform. And frankly, last year we were very close to passing the bill in the Senate. But it failed at the end because people in the extremes, in the extreme right, absolutely, those who uh, are afraid of immigrants for whatever reason, some racist reasons, absolutely. Uh, and there are those in the left as well, influenced by unions uh, who really don't see immigrants uh, who are afraid of immigrants as well because they believe they're taking jobs away from Americans. And they put pressure on their Democratic uh, uh, members. So, but I think there is a lot of consensus. And if the political planets align, then hopefully we'll get immigration reform. Dow, Dow Myers uh, will have a lot Just to say about this. Quickly, I've got to show you my book, which, an <laughs> which answers your question. There is a majority position here, but it's a quiet consensus. And the news media don't like this so much. They want drama. They want train wrecks. They want confrontations at the border. And they don't see this as newsworthy. This is a partnership basically between generations. You have older folks. You have younger folks. We don't have enough young folks in America. I'm going to give you my, my one number on this. The ratio of seniors to working age has been constant for 30 years. And next 10 years, it goes up 30%. And 10 years after that, another 30%. So we have too many old folks and not enough young folks. And so how are we going to get more young folks? Well, you guys figure it out. But <laughs> let, let me just add that Dow's book is incredibly readable. <laughs> um, you've been talking about assimilation and integration. Um, I was listening to you, and you said you've been through several processes of immigration. Mm -hmm. um, I have as well. Mm -hmm. And I would tell you that it's a whole different way that the governments, the federal government, they treat you when you're here in this country than when you're outside. When I've been through the offices and the process here, the, there's been more of a civic welcoming and more of a humanitarian approach towards me. But my experience from another country, the way they treat people in the consulates and the way they uh, I've been even tried to be mocked by the person that has been interviewing me uh, when, I've, when it's been outside of the country. How are you dealing with that? Because, and uh, th that is an issue itself that if you want people to see you as a welcoming nation, you need to even throw that message out there when people are having that first touch to this nation through the legal process of coming here to the visa, mm. or say it a, a work permit, with that outside uh, venue. Uh, Alfonso, yeah, we're gonna look to you. This is where I, I get <laughs> to say, those are the other agencies that do that. Mine is the humanitarian <laughs> one. Uh, well, you know, uh, yeah, I, I understand that. And uh, I, I've heard that many, many times. And you know, and honestly, I'm very proud of the agency that I, I, I work for. And honestly, we have a, a high number percentage of, of, of our employees that are immigrants themselves, naturalized Americans who now work for immigration services. And they're very proud. I mean, they organize the naturalization ceremonies. Those are very special ceremonies. So there's something special about that, the work that we do. Uh, unfortunately, at consulates, and, and this has more to do with work management, and uh, uh, I think it's, it's, it's not as fun. Uh, I mean, that, that's not an excuse. But there's certain consulates, uh, Ciudad Juarez, uh, others in Colombia, 
where the workload is so incredible uh, that uh, unfortunately uh, people, uh, some of our employees, uh, lose their patience. And uh, obviously that's not uh, an excuse. One of the things that we did at Immigration Services is we, as, a, as, a, uh, as an organization, as a corporation, we uh, developed a series of core values, and one of them is respect. We believe that we should treat immigrants with respect. We, should, we are a welcoming nation. And I think that's something that um, the State Department, who uh, is, is the agency that manages the consulate, should, should work on. Uh, I know it's very frustrating. Uh, now, at the same time, I wouldn't generalize. I do believe that most of our foreign service officers doing consular work are very good people committed to the country. Uh, but obviously, it's the, the workload in certain countries is so incredible. Uh, for example, from Mexico, the, in the pipeline, just people applying to come in the country as immigrant to, immigrants to become permanent residents, they have to wait over eight years to, for that visa to become available. Uh, so if you go to another place where they don't have that type of workload, uh, you know, things, things may be different. That, that's not an excuse, but we certainly need to work with them to make sure that they have a positive attitude. Just wanted to point out that People, every person that goes into the consulate, they actually have to pay money. So if you would actually treat them as clients, maybe would be our approach, our approach that they're also delivering money to this country. They should be treating more respect just to the matter of the employee, employer, or just as a client and customer kind of approach, maybe. Now, just to make also a general comment, you know, the, the 9-11 really changed things for us. Uh, and the challenge that we have, and this is something Secretary Ridge said and now Secretary Chertoff, is to continue to be a welcoming nation, a nation of immigrants, at the same time, make sure that we guarantee the security of the nation. It's a tough balance. But I think we're keeping that balance. If you look at the numbers, this last 10 years, every year, we've granted to a million individuals the status of permanent resident. Uh, this year, we will naturalize over one million new Americans. I think, and, and it has been like that for the past years, at least half a million being naturalized every year. Those numbers show that we are a welcoming nation, but, but generally I would say it's a very tough balance on how to ma manage the immigration system. It's very difficult, and obviously to make sure that those who we allow in are people who come to contribute to the country and not to do harm. And uh, it's tough. We have a question to your left up here. Oh. Hi, I'm Marissa Dagdagan. Um, thank you for the panel. It's, it's been really educational. Um, I am interested particularly in the conversation where you were talking about civic education. Um, it's just, it just struck me, forgive my cynical um, perspective, but it just struck me that when we talk about immigration and integration, there's, in the U.S., there always seems to be this, um, the conversation, conversation can veer towards the romantic. And um, so there are these simultaneous romantic views of what a nation state is and what it is to be, um, to be an American. I think Dowell's uh, question as, um, was very appropriate when you talk about civic education. So I was hop hoping you would elaborate as, as, like, what do you think follows from learning what the colors of the flag mean? Um, you know, I didn't, I also was born here and I didn't know many of the questions until I was helping my dad um, with, go through his citizenship process. So it just seems a little bit romanticized to say like, oh, I know what, I know what the preamble to the constitution is. Now I'm an American and here we go. So if you can just talk about that a little yeah. bit. Well, that's a very deep question. <laughs> Uh, you know, what I would say is certainly uh, civic education in the United States in schools uh, in the past 20, 30 years has been undermined because uh, a lot of people think it's not practical. It seems to be very theoretical. But I believe uh, education in history and civics has very practical consequences, specifically for immigrants. And believe it or not, immigrants want to learn about the country. What am I buying into? So it's not knowing facts, really. But it's knowing concepts. That's why the new test that we develop is more focused on concepts. What is the rule of law? That we take 
the law seriously in the United States, that nobody is above the law. I always give the example, you know, what I do, I go to citizenship classes and teach and engage immigrants in a discussion about history and civics. I do it myself directly. I think spokesmanship is something the federal government should do. And I always give the example to explain rule of law, you know, the stop sign. I'm a son of immigrants. I travel to certain parts of Latin America, so I know, and I say, well, when you see a stop sign, what does it mean to you in your home country? Is it the rule of law, or no, it's a suggestion, really. <laughs> well, <laughs> in the United States, the stop sign means stop. And that may seem like a very simple example, but you can take that to different stages of life and see that the rule of law in a democracy is a fundamental concept because it allows people to live together in a civilized manner. So if you deepen your understanding, it will, you will develop, you not only understand that, but identify and live by those principles in a way that is civilized. Also, you'll develop and love and attachment to the country, the history, for example. We study history with the good and the bad. We don't glorify US, at least I don't glorify US history saying we never had terrible periods. No, we had terrible periods in our history. So you study the good and the bad, but it's the history of the family. I always give the, the example of when you marry someone, you have to learn about the history of your spouse. So you get to know the mother-in-law, the crazy uncle, whatever. But that's the history of the family. And John Fonte from the Hudson Institute has this test. He says, when an immigrant sees U.S. history not as their history but my history, then they're American. And I agree with that. Not something static, but that continues to evolve. That I can be just arrived from Mexico and just naturalized, but this is my country and I can be part of it. So I think you develop an, an, atta an attachment to the country, and I think it promotes that social cohesion that it's necessary for a country to prosper socially and economically. We gave some money. We have 50 organiz community organizations that are receiving grants from the state to do citizenship classes. And so we are taking advantage, advantage of that to give them some civic education. We talk about the importance of get, uh, you know, first of all, to apply for the citizenship, to register to vote, to go and actually vote. And we, the state, cannot do that. But what we are doing is giving the small grants to community organizations, and it's working very well, because I agree with him. And that's an area that we need to work together. I mean, and I'm talking about federal government, state government, the county, the cities, because it has to be like a holistic plan. What we want is immigrants to fully participate in the American society. If they don't go and vote, they are not being part of the American society. They need to understand the value to vote. And let's say Mexicans, sometimes we have a hard time understanding that, that here our vote count. Now things are getting better in Mexico too, you know. It's, but like my father said, you know, I'm not going to vote here because, you know, my vote doesn't count. We need to care people. We really need to emphasize the importance of being fully participants in the American society. Question up front here. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank all of you for your contributions. I have a comment, although she told me I wasn't allowed to make any comments, but I'm going to make one anyway. Anyway, uh, I wanted to know what has happened to the concept of motivation, and what has happened to the concept of speaking a common language? I think we are a nation of immigrants. That's what our nation was built upon. And I think most people came to this country in order to improve their lives or the lives of their family. And I think most people understand that of course, there are always people who refuse to understand that idea. But I think that most of us are good people, basically, and believe in the fundamental goodness in people. So I want to know, at the turn of the century, when we had some of the most, the, the largest form of at numbers of immigrants, there were only education centers to teach English in the large urban communities. They didn't exist in a little community like I grew up in, 
and yet most of our parents and grandparents were immigrants when they got here, didn't speak the English language. So who did they learn from? They learned from their children. They learned from their neighbors. They were eager to learn the language of the country where they decided they wanted to live. What has happened to that kind of motivation and that desire? Thank you. I think immigrants are well motivated to learn the English language. They know that learning the English language will lead to improved wages. Um, and But the problem is sometimes they need to provide for their family immediately and they might not have time to learn the English language or there might not be classes available. But if you are going to look back in time to our, to our history here in the United States, in Pennsylvania they actually used to publish legislation in German. They, it wasn't always in English. And you think about, you think about also settlement houses and the churches. It's true the federal government was in, involved in schooling or education, immigrant education, but the churches were, the settlement houses were. That's certainly the integration policy of that time. So I like to remind people we've always had an integration policy. We never had the term integration, but everyone did help other people out. Mm -hmm. And now that the federal government is in charge of schooling, it might be a good idea to also think about how we can integrate children. I'm going to follow up on that. You mentioned German. I was going to comment on that, too. Mm -hmm. um, do you know what the largest ancestry group in America is today? <laughs> it's German heritage population. And the German language across the Midwest was really very prevalent. Dwight David Eisenhower, our great general and president, spoke German growing up in his house. And he was fighting against the Germans in the war. Think about that. It's interesting. Um, but what really stamped out the German language is World War I and World War II. So that accelerated the change. Because that's the largest group, and they, they were discouraged from using the language. Um, so, so the historical examples you're, you're thinking of, they, they really differ. In different parts of the country, with small, small nationalities can't maintain their language at all. It's very hard. The Germans had the best chance to do that before the, the uh, Spanish-speaking people. But all the surveys show that people in the second generation are fully bilingual, and in the third generation, the grandkids start losing the native tongue. And that's a, that's a linguistic tragedy, they call it. So it may not look visible you know, in the short run, because people haven't been here. If they haven't been here 10 years, you can't have made the big progression. But over time, all the data shows that everybody today is on this path still of linguistic transition. We have a question up front. Just to let you know, this will be the last question of the night. Everyone will have an opportunity for additional questions uh, for our panelists at the reception. Thank you. Okay, I'm uh, Neil Bethke. I've never identified as a German American, but uh, yeah, I am. But I'm in the education business, and and we didn't mention that uh, as far as language goes, uh, we were talking about the role of government versus volunteerism. But yet, you know, really I think the market is taking care of that. It's something we really haven't discussed here. And I think it's, I think the language thing is really a red herring. And I think the role of the state in this process should really be more in, in, in civic education, which business never does. There's, there's, there's no constituency for business to teach civics. Um, your comments. I, I, that is a great uh, comment because you know what? In America, when government cannot uh, provide a service, the market will. And that has happened with the English language. Uh, if you look at Univision or Telemundo tonight, you will see in just a space of three hours uh, at least 10 ads about Ingles Sin Barreras. Right. Uh, Terrible. Don't buy it. Don't get a terrible <laughs> program. But you know what? People do buy it because they're interested. They don't have the time. They're expensive. But there are other programs. Rosetta Stone, for example. As I've traveled visiting community centers, even churches, they buy Rosetta Stone. They have it um, in their computing centers. And immigrants go, and little by little, they start using it. Going back to motivation, they have the motivation to learn it. 
So I think we do have to look at uh, e-learning tools and see what the market offers. Uh, you know, I've been a proponent uh, um, that perhaps the federal government should provide, and in fact, the federal government through the Department of Education does have now uh, an English language program called USA Learns uh, for um, uh, limited English proficient uh, students, and they can access it by going to usalearns.gov, if I'm not mistaken. Is it? Yes. It's usalearns.gov. And it's not great, but I was a supporter of, instead of using USA Learns, using, for example, Rosetta Stone, and have the federal government perhaps do an RFP and then get a good program and then give access to all new immigrants to that type of technology. I, I think that's a great idea. We have to think creatively. That's where we have to look at, if we don't have enough certified teachers, what can we do to provide something that helps people learn English? What I think is that we need to have a national policies and immigrant integration. And, and we can start focusing in English as a second language. I think it's, it's a, a way, you know, it's uh, there is a way right now. And I'm very excited that we're going to have a senator that's moving from Illinois that's moving to the White House. And uh, I think it's the time, and um, I'm talking to some friends in Illinois, we presented a, a proposal for we want to learn English. It's a national campaign. And uh, I don't know if it's going to happen, but at least we are trying. Because in that initiative, we are considering civic education. We can, it's going to be a little bit, we are stealing from, from my friend uh, <laughs> the idea of uh, having a, a website that's going to help immigrants to learn English. But, but we want to do it in a way that accommodates better. I mean, it's good, but it, it's a lot of improvement that, that, that it can be made in the, in the, in the proposal. That, actually, it's like a month ago, right? Like you, you say, Lawrence? Yeah. Oh, it can be improved dramatically, I'm sure. <laughs> it was developed by the Department of Education. Yeah. There, there, you know, there you go. I mean, uh, it, it's, it was a commitment to do something to provide a tool, but there you go, Department of Education. I'd rather have the, the, the market have a good company that's known yes. for developing language programs develop something uh, which may be more useful. Uh, by the way, let me. Uh, uh, the task force of New Americans, the president's task force of New Americans, will release its report on Thursday uh, in Washington. Uh, we'll issue a press release, and you'll be able to find it on the web at dhs.gov. And this is a report uh, on uh, with recommendations to the president and to the president-elect on how to strengthen assimilation efforts in the United States. So. I think we'll end it there and uh, ask you to join all of us uh, out on the patio, I think is where we're going, yes. for some refreshments. <laughs> let's, uh, let's give a hand to our panel. Yeah.